Today's episode of the Gaucho 9 podcast is brought to you by Kyle's Kitchen. Kyle is still open in Goleta and Santa Barbara. Go check them out. Get the farmhouse salad. Get a Kyle's Classic burger and enjoy lunch and dinner from Kyle's Kitchen. Hope you enjoyed the bonus pod over the weekend with the summer ball update. Guys in the Northwoods, guys playing around in California, guys building their own gyms, guys uh, just getting in work however they can here in summer of 2020. So I hope you guys enjoyed that. Today we got part two with Bill Guyvet, and with no further ado, let's get to it. Here's Guyvo. It's one of the most beautiful views of any campus in America, the Pacific Ocean crashing against the shores of UC Santa Barbara every morning, noon, and night. Here's the one-strike pitching. Mitchell belts the deep left. Cabrera is going to watch it fly. He strikes out the side for the second consecutive inning. And Armani belts it to deep center. Gauchos are going to Omaha. Can you believe it? There's the 0-2 pitch. And a curveball is swung on him. And the score is due. Here comes Mitchell. He's going to score. And the Gauchos are the 2019 champions of the Big West. Okay, so, so you, you, you had a you're drafted by the California Angels. You had a, a brief playing career in the minor leagues, hampered by a knee injury. Uh, we don't need to get too much into that. But I read a piece that Bill Mahoney wrote a handful of years ago about you. And in it, you have a quote where you said something along the lines of, you always knew that you wanted to either get into coaching or some sort of scouting. And you went through your college experience being observant of the things that you might need to pay attention to in the future. So was that kind of always at the forefront or was there something that really inspired you to get into the professional baseball side of things as far as an executive and a scout? Well, I always thought that I'd coach in college. So I prepared even from when I was a high school player to junior college player to playing for coach Santa Barbara to in the minor leagues of always just studying everything that was going on and the great opportunity I had. And I really had no idea what I was doing at the time. And I'll get back to this later, but because I played third base in college, I got to talk to the opposing coach all the time. So I would go, go over there, you know, in between innings, I'd run out there and I'd wait for him to show up. And a lot of guys would come out there early. Some wouldn't. After I started talking to him, a lot would come out earlier. And I would ask him questions. And so the whole time, I mean, I can remember, you know, some of these names now aren't coaching anymore, but, you know, Andy Lopez got his first job at Dominguez Hills. And I can remember Andy and I talking to Andy now and, and I still have lunch once every six weeks, we're about due with all the COVID stuff we haven't had in a while. But, um, you know, we have lunch together. He's on our board, our advisory board uh, for I'm a player, and, and we're still close. But at the time I was doing that, I had no idea that people were gaining the perception of, of me as this future guy in baseball. So I was basically building a my brand, which I had no idea because we didn't talk like that back then. But I was legitimately trying to find out what was going on. I can remember we were playing in the Cal League and I'd signed with the Angels and I'm playing, we're up in Reno and the Alomars are on that team and there's a lot of good players. Padres had an A-ball and Jim Scalen's manager with the, uh, the Reno team in the California League, single A, and I'm asking and he's the manager, and I'm talking to him, asking him questions. Okay, a guy shows up late. What do you do? He shows up late again. What do you do? You know, I'm asking him all these questions about how he handles his team and when he likes to hit and run and when does he not want to sacrifice spot in a tie game at home, road, all this type of stuff. At what point in the order are you in? And after, you know, we're playing, a, I think it was at least a four-game series because I think sometimes we played five-game series up there. And after about the third or fourth day, he goes, hey, are you going to ask me every question about baseball you can think of? <laughs> and I said, probably, probably. I'm getting kind of low, but I'm going to figure out some more to ask you. <laughs> and so the whole time in my mind, I was preparing to coach in college. 
you know, I went back and, and uh, after I got done, you know, I hurt my knee, they did two surgeries and, and uh, I had had it after all the rehab. So I left and, and uh, USC called Coach Gillespie about their assistant position and Loyola Marymount. And I ended up uh, not getting the SC job and got the Loyola job and started coaching there. And uh, that's really, I got my master's and, and uh, that's what I thought I was going to be doing was coaching in college. And they started changing the rules to the point where you could only practice like four weeks in the fall. Now, people don't remember this, but we would play 70 games in the fall in winter before the season. So we would be playing, I mean, different times. Yeah. I mean, we would play either on Tuesday or Wednesday. We'd play Friday against the junior college. We'd play a doubleheader on Saturday. I mean, that's what we did at Sacramento city college. Our first off day was the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. And we were seven days a week up there. And that's the thing that, that people don't understand today of how much there was. So I'm involved in that transition now. I'm just getting to the point in 91 at, at um, um, you know, Long Beach State that we're going to, we went to the College World Series. And I'm getting to the point where I'm a year or two away probably for getting one of these four-year uh, deals and getting, a, in my mind, a head coaching job there because we're going pretty good and people are starting to talk to me about that type of stuff. I was still young at the time, but um, I feel like I could get in the mix of, of one of the four-year schools as a head coach. And when they changed the rules, I just couldn't do it. Four weeks in the fall was just like a huge, huge deal to me. And I needed more baseball. And so I had made mention to a couple of people that, you know, I'm willing to take off. So what happened was Coach Snow, they're going to make me an offer to stay at Long Beach State. Because you could only have one full-time assistant at that time, and then a part-time guy and a graduate assistant, four weeks in the fall. I'm going, what is this? So they make the offer at Long Beach State. At the same time, I told Coach, I, you know, it's probably best for me to get out of college baseball and go into professional, back to professional baseball so I can get more baseball. And so I put the word out, and now I start getting a couple of scouting offers, people are offering me jobs. And the one that I had heard a lot about was Bill Livesey was over at the Yankees. And I felt like he'd be a great mentor for me of getting into scouting because I never thought about being a scout. And so I ended up taking that job. So I'm the only man alive that has taken a pay cut to go with the New York Yankees. Believe me. I took, uh, you know, I even look back and I took about a $20,000 pay cut to go with the New York Yankees. And that is uh, unheard you of. You don't hear that every day. Wow. No, I'm the only man alive on the planet, I think. And then, uh, yeah, and just did it there. But I had always prepared to be a college coach. I didn't, uh, I didn't even really consider professional baseball. When I was leaving, they'd offered me a managing job at A-Ball and, you know, they wanted me to to be involved in that. And that would have been great too. But at the time, you know, Bonnie and her getting married or starting her family, that type of deal. I just didn't feel like it would be a great thing to do. Plus I prepared to be in college and I really like that age of player. That's why overseeing all the minor league departments that I did, right. You know, that age of player, it, you know, it's, uh, you know, learning the lessons of baseball at that age. Some of it for the first time, it's, it's, um, you know, it's great for me to see and to see players. You can see them when they're younger and then watch them when they're older and playing in the big leagues and all that stuff. It's really a, it's a nice feeling to have. So you get your feet wet with the Yankees and you, and you dive in, kind of hit the ground running. You mentioned Bill Livesey. And you go to the, the Expos and you eventually end up with the Rays and you're in the, the minor league development portion of those organizations and I think in 96 with the Expos you guys won the tops organization of the year and you worked with Felipe Alou you mentioned him earlier then you come to the Rays and I'm, I'm curious about the Rays because they were an expansion team at the time because you arrived there in 97 and so 
what is it like preparing a new team? Because there's there's no culture. They don't have a farm system. Everyone is arriving from different places. Like, what is that like? And what was that experience like to you to kind of be part of that creation? Well, it was great. I mean, Montreal, I loved. They wanted me to move back to Florida, which I had an office in West Palm and one of Montreal. Really wasn't in Montreal that much. I was with our minor league teams all the time. Um, and then down in the office in Florida. And I, we really didn't, Bonnie didn't like Florida. And I, I really didn't care to live there. You know, I'm being honest here. And the, yeah, the Rays were the Devil Rays at the time were starting up and they were recruiting me to double secret, you know, under the table kind of meetings. And, and uh, yeah, so I ended up going over there and, it's, it was really weird. I did it for the expansion. At that time, they talked about that expansion was the first of two. So I felt like career-wise, because I'm a younger, ambitious front office guy, hey, I get expansion experience in this and get to watch everything that the, our leaders are really doing, even though I was special assistant to the GM to go over there. Um I really got to see how they put together a club, how they put together, you know, I was there to help put together the minor league stuff, but I really wanted to see all the major league stuff thinking that then there's another expansion and maybe, you know, somebody will find value in, in me being over there in one of those more leadership type of positions. And it's really interesting for a club to every time you do something, it's the first time it's ever done with that club. I mean, I still have notes from the very first spring training because I had to, you know, draft all that of what we we're doing with our field activities. And at the beginning, all we had was a minor league camp. So I could still have the very first minor league plans of what we did. We had 105 players on one field hmm. um, and trying to figure all that out and busing guys over at Eckerd College and doing all the things that we did. It really felt like it was um, – you know, it was definitely a great experience, but just to be doing things for the first time and trying to establish here's the way we do it here. Um, there's a great amount of responsibility in that. And it's not to be taken lightly because you know, you're trying to build the foundation. You don't think the club's going to go out there and win a world series the first year. You're doing everything for the future and building something that will last and building the traditions of, you know, how this club does things. So it was, it was fun. It was, you know, interesting. It was a lot of, you know, it was 18 hour days. And when you got 105 players on one field, what you're going to do with them all day, that was, uh, yeah, that was really interesting, but no, it was, it was great. It was great. I mean, I really enjoyed the time there and the people there were outstanding and at the time, we felt like we'd probably have a lot more money and revenue than what it played out to be. Um, but there was no short change in spending money or doing anything back then. So it was, uh, it was great. So after the raise, so you, you didn't express it, Florida's not the place for you. California is the place for you, and you get a chance to come back and work for the Dodgers. And this is when you met Tommy Lasorda. And I briefly met Tommy at a gaucho game. We were at Cal State Northridge a, a handful of years ago, and that was the first time. I, I mean, I'd known of Tommy Lasorda. I mean, I've seen him in highlights, and you know, I knew he was a big Dodger guy, a big L.A. guy, and really a – powerful face in the game of baseball and so that was a special moment for me because oh man this is this, this is Tommy Lasorda he's at a college baseball game he's out here supporting the young kids the up-and-comers and I know he has some maybe some kind of relationship with CSUN but you got to work with him and I think he was an inspiration for you and he became a huge influence on you when you went to the Dodgers yeah well Tommy Tommy and I were there together for I mean, I would say 80% of the time, Tommy was with me. So his job was to be Tommy Lasorda, which he did, performed very, very well. And, and he enjoyed it. And then uh, and my job was overseeing the minor leagues and was with the major league team a lot. I was kind of half and half. So I was with the big league club a lot. 
and with the minor league guys, not as much as I would like, but probably 50-50. And then Tommy, you know, Tommy lived in Fullerton and still does, and I lived in New York, Belinda at the time. And Tommy's like a free pass to show up late. You know, you can, I can wait till traffic dies down. As long as I got Tommy with me and we come walking in, nobody can say anything, right? Because you got Tommy. And all my time was spent on the phone anyway. So I'd drive over and then we'd get in Tommy's car and I'd drive to Dodger Stadium and we'd be together all the time. But yeah, to be able to spend time with him and all the history, you know, the things it's one thing to sit with the guy's man that long and Tommy didn't get the credit for the strategy and um, you know, that he would use in game. Everybody thinks he's more of a environment, you know, happy, da, 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 get his team to play. And that's a big part of what he did is, uh, is that, but you know, those times where we'd walk around Dodger town in spring training, you know, we lived there. We had our workouts at Dodger town, you know, we stayed there we really didn't get to go anywhere, but one, they had a sports bar in there where everybody would go in at night. And, and in that hallway was all these pictures of uh, old Dodger pictures. And Tommy had a story about every picture and every guy in there. And then we'd take our nightly walk and Tommy would show me where Branch Rickey had the barracks and what he would do when he came in, he'd have a nightly lecture and have all the players in there. And at that time they'd have 450 players uh, because they had 19 minor league teams and they'd have them all in this huge barracks and Branch Ricky would be talking about the curveball or doing this. And I could ask him of what Mr. Ricky thought of, you know, different aspects of the delivery or whatever else. And he could share those stories of, of you know, what had gone on way back then and talk about how they developed players and what was important to them back then. And it was really, really, I, you know, people, I just don't, between Felipe Lou, Tommy, you know, besides all, you know, my college coaches and Ferrer and Weinstein and Hal Stewart in high school and Coach Harris, but to be able to spend time, quality time with guys like that that have been around the game for so long and to be able to tell you how they did it and why they did it that way. Um, you know, you just can't, you can't get that anywhere. It was just, uh, it's, it was unbelievable. So yeah, all that time with Tommy and then all the major league games we watched together because we would sit in the box, the far left box before Tom Hanks suite in the press box where Tommy and I would sit every night back then and uh, to be able to watch every game and just see things through his eyes of what he would see and what he felt like would happen as a manager of a team. It was, uh, it was something. So in your 2000, sure. very, very, I've been very, very fortunate. Yeah. So in 2000, you, you're about um, six, seven years in, Actually, maybe maybe a few more, maybe like eight years in, and you bounce around for to a couple teams. On a personal level, like at that point, was it what you expected, or did you were you still looking for more? Because, like you said, when you're when you're playing third base in a Gaucho uniform and you're talking to the third base coach, you're just that's just you being Bill. You're just curious about the game. It was kind of a natural instinct to talk to the other coaches. Did that natural instinct continue or was it more a guided instinct at this point, you know, around the year 2000? No, I think it's always a constant study. I mean, that's all baseball is. That's why the people that don't like analytics, I don't, I don't get what the, what do you think? You know, everything that's not any type of, if you're really passionate about what you're doing, there's, there's always growth. It's growth in everything. Nothing is stagnant. So um, if you're stagnant, you're losing. And so you're always trying to find out a better way or look to another way. At the time, uh, baseball was very traditional. And, you, I mean, I can go back to when I was in Montreal and I'm changing things that we're doing and everybody thinks I'm nuts. I was one of the guys that, you know, people would call out as he's crazy, he's changing stuff and da 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 da, da. But we were – I wasn't going to just stay with – what's been going on. I'm going to think about what we should be doing, not just go off what I've seen or heard in the past. And 
you know, that's what we did. And so the whole time, either with the Dodgers or Montreal or wherever, was really a study to try to figure out what's the best way to do this. And you got to remember, I went from a club in Montreal that basically had the least amount of money in baseball. Well, and, and I was before, like, uh, it, what, in 94, it was a strike-shortened season. The Expos, they were, you know, for those who don't remember the Expos, but they were, I think, in first place in the National League East. Seven and, a half games, seven and a half games ahead of the Braves, best record in baseball yeah. in Pittsburgh. Yeah, you had Randy Johnson, you had Pedro Martinez. Did you have those players on that team? Randy Johnson had been traded. That year was okay. Pedro Martinez, Ken Hill, you know, Butch Henry, Jeff Vicero, Kirk Reeder were our starters. Wetland was in the bullpen. Larry Walker's in right. Moise Lou, Marquise Grissom. I mean, just a tremendous team. I mean, yeah. the best, best team in baseball before that strike. And then when we – we were in Pittsburgh when the season actually ended and the strike was happening in August, I believe of 94. And so we go back and we're back in the offices and we're doing whatever. And then we find out that uh, our payroll is going to go from 9.1 million all the way up to 20 if we keep everybody. So we can't do that. We got to stay at 9.1 million. So we had to trade Ken Hill, John Wetland and Larry Walker. Um, to keep the payroll in line. And uh, yeah, it was difficult. You think about it then. Now it's all relative, right? The Yankees were at 55 million at that time. And so you're talking about a while ago. But, but that's that's still, I'm doing my math right, that's still like five, six times more than the Expos payroll. Oh was, yeah, in, yeah. In, but the Expos were looking at doubling their payroll you got the best record in baseball, yeah. and you're going to double your payroll. So, yeah, no, those players got traded, and, and uh, it was what it was. We went way down in 95. Still, with a couple weeks to go, there was – maybe it was 96, a couple of chance to get us a wild card. Um, you know, we still had a good team and good players, and then we had, obviously, in the minor leagues, we had a, a lot of good players. Vladimir Guerrero and Jose Vidro and – Michael Barrett and a bunch of kids that end up going up and, and playing very well. But, you know, it was, um, but it was a great experience because you had a general manager, scouting director, and a farm director. That was your front office. There was no analytics department with 20 guys in there crunching numbers. There was no special assistance to the GM where you got 15 of those guys running around. There was, it was, that was it. And so as a younger guy, my first front office opportunity, I got to do a lot of things that people wouldn't be doing in today's world. I mean, I was helping negotiate major league contracts. I was doing statistical studies on players that we might acquire or trade for. I was involved with a lot of agents and doing things that, that people today in that same type of director of player development would never even be involved in. So you get to Colorado, and maybe you consider this like a, a big break. I don't know, but you become their director of player personnel in 2000, and that's kind of where you found Well, I I'd signed on with the Dodgers. I had signed on with the Dodgers for four and did two. Okay. I, I really wasn't excited about all that was going on there, to be honest, and decided to leave. And went and the Rockies, when they found out I was available or, or going to be leaving, then, yeah, they offered me the director of player personnel, and I did that. And they allowed me to live in Yorba Linda and stay there, um, which I ended up doing for four years until they put the full court press on me to get back to Denver. <laughs> Every year they'd talk to me about it, and I could fend them off. And then finally it was like, let's go. It's time for you to come back here. So ended up moving and bought a down jacket, maybe even a down vest. Fancy. And uh, got some, got to put away my leather bottom shoes and got some rubber soled ones. And so I wouldn't fall on the ice and moved to Denver. <laughs> so, well, yeah. What was that transition like? 
going to, to, to Colorado. It was, it was really good. And one of the things that I felt like with the Dodgers, I thought with the Dodgers, I was going to, you know, Mr. O'Malley still owned the team. He was in the process of selling, but he still owned the team. And I really felt, I always looked at the Dodgers as like, this is a great family organization. And that's the way I thought of it. And then, uh, when I got over there and with the transition of Fox was great. I mean, they pumped a lot of money into the Dodgers uh, at that time, but I just felt like it wasn't that family type of club that it seems like you want to be going to. It was really big, a lot bigger than I'd ever seen in, you know, Montreal or Tampa Bay. And it was kind of a culture shock to me, to be honest with you. And I, I really didn't enjoy my time there except for you know obviously being with Tommy and some of the people that were there it's not like I disliked them it just the whole feel of it was it was too much the bigger you are it can tend to get a little bit out of control and that's what I felt like it was from an organization standpoint nothing against people that were working there but anyway so I go to the Rockies and that was exactly I think what I was looking for you know, you had the Monfort brothers were the main owners of the team. Kelly McGregor, our president, was a former NFL guy and a coach and a really exceptional leader and smaller and just like a, you know, a family type of company type of thing. And everybody was really close. And, and um, yeah, I felt at home there. Well, and, and those su- the successful teams that they had, and, and partial contribute on, and you contributed a lot. I wouldn't say partially; you contributed a lot to these the teams, like in '07 and '09, where a lot of the players on those teams are you guys are drafting them and you guys are bringing them up through the minor league system, and they're homegrown. And there's a lot to say about a homegrown team, like. I think the fans like them a lot better. They they hear about them constantly. They they grow up in the minor league system playing together, and just there's a different feel about a homegrown team. And it sounds like, based on your philosophies of scouting and, and coaching, is that that's the kind of goal that, that you want to have as far as product on the field. Yeah, yeah. Well, you want – I mean, they say it's a record. I don't know. In 2007, we were in the World Series with 17 – homegrown players. I want to say in 2009, we started the season, we started opening day with every single player on the field was a homegrown player. And yeah, that kind of stuff was really important to us because we were 21st in payroll. You know, so it wasn't like you can go buy free agents, especially pitchers. We couldn't even draft pitchers back then high in the first round because the agents would always try to keep them away from having a pitch in Colorado. Right. So they, you know, they'd make us want to pay $5 million or something for some pitcher when they would go somewhere else for less. And now with the way the draft has changed and the rules, you got slotting and the numbers are the same. So they can get some younger pitchers now out of the draft. They're still going to have issues with free agent pitchers that are, you know, guys that come in and impact your club right away. So, um, yeah, it was, uh, but it was fun. You know, we were down there and, and uh, I think the club had realized that we're only going to live and survive and exceed uh, expectations if we home grow our players and they're ours and they're with us and we have them under contractual control at a, you know, at a, at a price we can afford, and that's how we're going to grow our team. So, um, no, we had a lot of got a lot of good players, and and those guys were tremendous talent. And at the same time, they were much like those old Gaucho teams. They were together. They were a group of guys that were together. They're all friends. They'd all you'd go walking in the clubhouse for a 7-10 game, and at noon, 11.30, they'd be in there having lunch together. I don't know if their wives hated them or what the deal was, but they were all being there and joking and laughing and sitting around. They weren't going to do anything as far as working out for another hour or so, but they were all 
in there, trying to be the first one to the park and and enjoying their time together. And they still do. And those guys are still close. And, and um, yeah, it's really interesting when you have players and group of kids that you bring in, first-time professionals, and then they, you know, graduate all the way up to the big league level. They've all been through the same stuff. They all have shared experiences. And then they get to play together and then play at the highest level, especially in the World Series. Um, yeah, it was something special to watch. So did you have any influence or did you scout or want to draft Ryan Spielberg? So you mentioned the Gauchos. <clears throat> well, Spilly's a, a Gaucho, so it was interesting because at the time I really didn't know him, but I remember being in that draft and, and you know, the guys that had seen him, I'd saw a bunch of, you know, I'd see 100, 125 sometimes of the top players in the country. But for whatever reason, I didn't see Spilly that year. But, uh, yeah, I was in there pulling for him. Everybody knew there's a gaucho. You know, he's getting taken at some point. So, or I got my eye on him. That's the first thing I do when all the scouts will get done with their meetings is go, okay, let me find my gauchos, who they got. Because just because of my duties at the big league level or with the minor league teams, I couldn't get to see the gauchos every year. But uh, there were definitely times where I could, if I could get to see them, then I would. Uh, but most of the times my travels were – you know, could be anywhere, the SCC tournament or ACC tournament or wherever they wanted me to go to see the the top guys in the draft or, or higher picks. So. So, with, so with Colorado, I mean, it's, it's the place where you spent the most time and you were the assistant GM. Was that like, did you want to try and pursue a, a GM or a or a higher spot? Or were you comfortable with that position that you held in Colorado for so long? No, I was. I really felt like Colorado was a you know good organization that I liked. Uh, Bonnie, you know, the kids are now when you're getting to this stage, you're in high school. You don't. Uh, I think Bonnie told me if you get some job, you're going on your own, and then we'll, we'll see you in the summer. <laughs> but. Uh, you know, that type of deal. It was, yeah, the only other job I really interviewed for was Houston. But at the time at the, with the Rockies, I was making the decisions or the decision maker in terms of what was going on with our big league club. So that's why you'll hear at times or somebody will say, oh, yeah, he's the GM here. I really wasn't in title. But in terms of making decisions with the big league club, I was the guy making decisions with the manager. So... Um, a little bit different in that regard as it relates to the traditional setup. But, um, but no, I was, it was, it was fine. I was happy. I think more so for me in terms of a long career and doing the same kind of stuff. I think that's probably more of, of where you get to, you know, the same type of, it wasn't because, I had been pushed up into dealing with stuff at the major league level and really all levels of baseball, but especially at the major league level. And I always enjoyed being in different places. I could be with the rookie ball team. I could be with the big league club. I could be out at some college scouting a player for the draft. That going every different direction is really what I liked. And being just camped out at the big league level was, um, it wasn't as fun. You know, you kind of get used to everything and, and whatever. And then by that time, when I was there with them all the time, um, you know, it just, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't as exciting as being able to bounce around and do different stuff. You need, you, you need variety. Like, yeah, exactly. You want to feel like lifer. Yeah, you're, you're a baseball lifer, so you're watching the same game. In theory, you're watching the same game, but – you're not, and you want that variety where you're seeing different levels of the game. Well, and especially with younger players, you know, where you can either feel like people bring in to have a conversation with this kid and, you know, that might help him in some way. That was, uh, I think that that I, I guess going back to like the roots of that coaching when I was preparing to coach 
and be involved in doing that with younger players. Um, I think that's what I had prepared for. So I always seem to want to gravitate towards that just to be a part of what's going on there where I might be able to be a positive influence in terms of whatever they're going through, whether it be their performance on the field or off the field or whatever else, but to um, just be able to, to help. That's all. And at the big league level, a lot of times, you know, the guys are, they've been playing for a long time. They've been doing their thing. And um, it's just not like you can be as helpful to them. They got plenty of, other areas and different agendas and things going on that uh, they might even feel like me being a representative of the club is not a good guy to talk to. You know, there's that part of it too, where they can't really open up. And so it just wasn't as exciting as, as being with the kids and being in a lot of different aspects of baseball, a lot of different levels. Okay. So that being said, where you want to be an influence on the high school, the college players, the seeking out that potential and then helping foster it and watching it grow. Are there any, so I'm going to bring up two names here of former Gauchos who I have interacted with or worked with who are not players, but they are involved in the game. One on your side of things and one in the media side of things, but FP Santangelo jr and Marcus Cuellar. Have you had much interaction with them? Well, FP Jr., you know, we had his dad with Montreal. And in my book, there's a long story about me and his dad. So we go <laughs> way back. And then Cindy is his mom. I've known her since I can remember we were in Montreal and because FP actually played at Sacramento City College. Right. After I did. And so we ended up going out to breakfast when FP got was up in the big leagues with him and Cindy. And uh, I used to tell FP, I don't know how, how does this beautiful gal end up with you? It doesn't make any sense. So it goes way back from there. And then seeing, uh, you know, FP Jr. and whatever, I, I just, you know, I'm always rooting for him. And now he's a big shot broadcaster guy too you know he's uh doing his thing up in san francisco but uh yeah i have had a lot queer i haven't um well with fp jr i certainly have and and really any gaucho i mean any gaucho that's out there i mean for me i just think that's uh, part of what you do as a gaucho you know you look out for him you do what you can for him you're there to help and and that's the way we do things. So any gaucho that's out where I can ever do anything to help, um, you know, we're, there's a bunch of us that are always around to do that. Always. Well, and so I, this is my ninth year with the program. And one of my favorite weekends is, is the alumni weekend because, I mean, it's a, it's a gathering of gauchos and, and like we've discussed, I mean, it's, it's when everyone comes and, and reminisces and you see old friends and you talk about the, the shared times on the field, the shared times on road trips and the hotels, the games, the, the ups and the lows, all of that stuff. And when I first learned about your, who you were and your name, and then saw you at one of the dinners at Glen Annie after the golf tournament and everyone is kind of rallying around you and you seem to be a rally point for gaucho alumni like everyone wants to everyone either knows gaivo or everyone wants to get to know you and so this has been a privilege for me, me in my own right getting to have you on this podcast but what what does alumni weekend mean to you because it's the time when all the gauchos that are around in many different places are actually in one place at one time well, it's, I mean, come on, it's been great. Now, the last couple of years, I have to admit, I've, I've been to just about every one of them. Uh, I, pro I missed a lot while I was, you know, working all the time, but then I'd be able to get to them. And I've tried to get back in the last couple of years. Last year was Loyola Marymount, which I hadn't been there since I coached there for 30 years. So I ended up going back to that one. And then, uh, or I think it was almost 30 years. And Long Beach State, 
I went to that one as well. They had a golf tournament the year before then on the same day. So I really felt like I needed to go see all those guys because I can't take the verbal abuse that I've been taking for all these years and not showing up. Fair. So I did do that and I, and I missed the gaucho one last couple, but yeah, no, I always, you know, the big part of it's the hammerheads, right? So mm-hmm. sure. you know, I get the hammerheads back there and Casey and the crew and they all use it as a, a big rallying time to get all, you know, their buddies and our buddies. We, everybody knows everybody. I mean, that's the way we kind of every weekend we'd hammerheads would have a party somewhere when we were back in school and we'd end up over there at some point in the evening. Um, don't tell coach Ferrer that, but, um, yeah, so it, no, it's, it's a really a great time. I wish a lot of people would make more time to be there, um, or make time to be there just so they can show up. And I, I really feel like people that haven't been there really don't understand how, what a tremendous experience it is to see everybody after all these years. I mean, we have some people that that uh, I feel like should show up and be part of that crew. And uh, I'm certainly planning on being there this year because I've done my other stuff, my other service, but definitely want to go back. And I just love seeing everybody. And it's in a lot of ways for younger people, you just don't understand that things really don't change just because you're older. (laughs) I mean, it's the same lingo. It's the same, same sayings we had back then seem to come out. Oh, it's so true. It's so true. Yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's a really amazing and a fun time. Just a really fun time. Now, and you got to pace yourself. Though. See, so I don't do the Friday night get together. I just do the Saturday pregame golf tournament, whatever. And then the Sunday thing, I go play golf sandpiper, you know, them do the alumni game and all that stuff. I get... I can't get physically injured at this point in my career. Well, so. with the with the new lights, we we switched it around this year. So we had we had the the game on Friday night coincide with the social. So the social is at the ballpark, either by, like behind home plate, and then it kind of spilled into the alumni dugout, which turned out to be a great time. So those yeah, well, times, I can't. I'm, I'm not yeah. going back to back. That's what I'm saying. I'm not going back to back. <laughs> At this point in my career, I can do Saturday. I'll give you one day where I can do that stuff. 110% of Bill on one day. I'll, I'll take that. Yeah, I'm not a resident of IV where I can go back to back. Those days are over. I'll just do the Saturday gig. I can handle that. That's fair. Kind of. But uh, no, it really is. It's such a, I mean, a great time for me to see everybody and, uh, you know, and hopefully they, I can say something to keep them entertained for a little bit, but they just to see everybody to me and find out what's going on and what they're doing. And, and it's funny, you go through, now that I'm old, you know, you kind of figure it out when you're in your thirties, everybody's kind of locked into their career and what they're doing. So they're busy. And, you know, that's a time where I was out running around doing baseball stuff. So I never really went back to those alumni games. I tried to get there if I could. When I was with the Dodgers, I think I came up to one. And I brought my sword up there for a fundraiser one time. But other than that, you're so geared into your career. You're working all the time. You're doing all that. And then to get to a point where once the kids kind of get into high school or start getting into college, then you kind of go back and you reconnect with a lot of your old college buddies and friends. Now I've been fortunate with my college buddies and gauchos and Derek Vanacore and Sal Nicolosi and, and John Davis. We've been able to, we go to nap every year. Last year's first year we didn't because there's some uh, physicians that told a couple of our reunion members that they should probably stop drinking here for a while. So we had to cancel last year. So hopefully we'll be back. Listen to your physicians. Uh, yeah. yeah, I tell the truth. So, um, you know, maybe they've been to Napa a few too many times. But so hopefully we go back this year. But so we've always, that little group has always been doing that. And then we got another golf group where we take golf trips with Derek Vanacore again and John Eukster up in San Francisco. And we'd go play different players or golf courses around the country. And uh, so we do that type of stuff, but it just seems like when you start getting into that age where the kids are kind of moving on, 
and out of the nest, so to speak, that you go back and, and really get your strong relationships back with your with your college buddies. At least that's the way it's played out with us. Well, I hope listeners take that to heart. I think that's that's important. And I'm 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 only thirty, so I'm I'm kind of in that realm and I, I say that I'm busy all the time and I've I've used that as an excuse. But I'm I'm starting to realize that and, and trying to take it to heart and, and think about those sorts of things and reconnect. And especially right now when there's been no sports for for four months and I've used this platform and then and a handful of other things to to reconnect, including golf. I think golf is a great way to reconnect and I've 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 done yeah. that with high school friends and, and, and college friends as well. Uh, you covered, I think, a lot of this last question that I wanted that I want to ask you, but just I want to prompt it because UCSB has made a huge impact on your career and your your personal life. Like, what kind of lessons and habits and knowledge that you build as a student and an athlete? Like, what can you thank UCSB for as far as where you've wound up? You know, I think UCSB is. Um... I think the, the, the one aspect that I always say is that, and I'll tell people, you never met a gaucho that's not a good guy or gal. I mean, they always seem to be very pleasant, happy, and engaging. And I tell people that all the time, and they think, oh, yeah, you're just because he's a gaucho, da, 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 blah, blah. And I said, no. And I used to get that a lot when we were trying to trade for Michael Young one time. <laughs> oh, guy, well, you just like him because he's a gaucho. I said, well, that's part of it, but yeah, not the only reason. The guy can hit, man. He can play. <laughs> um, but it really is the truth to me. And I think because of being at that place where you're living with everybody in Isla Vista, and then you're you know, so you're socially involved in a lot of stuff and you're, so you get used to respecting other people and what they do, because it's not like you're just going to bump into somebody on campus and never see them again. You know, so you, you're, you tend to, I think, act more responsibly because everybody is part of your community. So you really get a community type of feel in living in Isla Vista with a bunch of young people together and then as you move on in life, you're still kind of that way. And that's why to me, I think if anything about Santa Barbara, it teaches people to get along with everybody around you. And that's the biggest thing I think about that place. And I love, you know, a lot of people say disparaging things about Isla Vista. To me, I think it's a great place. It's uh, certainly if you'd like to be involved in extracurricular activities, it's a great place. But if you really look at it and study it to have all those young people living together, somebody's got to be mature in there to hold the crew <laughs> together. And, and then other people can learn from those people that are doing that. And they're older players to me when I came from junior college. So I was already, you know, I'd say slightly mature, but then to, you know, be able to learn how to be around a bunch of people on a consistent basis. I think it speaks a lot for how you move into like the business world or working in a corporation or doing whatever, when you're used to being around a lot of different people and different personalities and whatever else, knowing that you have to live together. And so for me, I think it's more of that that I look to of what, how special the place was to me. I mean, athletes don't know that, yeah, you remember some things about your athletics and whatever else, but that's not really what you take from college. And it seems weird for a guy, professional baseball, you think you'd just be locked into baseball and all that. But as a you know person looking back, I think that, that type of aspect of the environment that you're involved in there is really, really a good teacher, whether you realize you're being taught or not. Well, I have nothing more to add. I think you hit it right on the head. And that's where I want to leave this podcast. Because um, UCSB is a special place for me. It's, it's why I'm still here and it's why I'm using this platform to, to promote the program and to promote the school and, and continue to reflect about the relationships that I have built and that I am carrying on 
to this day. So with that said, Bill, thank you so much for spending time this morning. And we hope that you are a recurring guest. I imagine that you will be a recurring guest uh, on this podcast because the plan is to keep it moving forward uh, into the season and onward and talk about gauchos who are having good seasons and who are potentially be uh, moving on to the professional ranks. So uh, thank you so much for being here this morning, and uh, we look forward to talking to you soon. No, Kevin, thanks for getting an old guy on here, and uh, I look forward to watching your other episodes and seeing who else is on there talking about gaucho land. But uh, thank you very much for having me on. It was my pleasure. All right, that's Bill Guyvette. Thanks, Bill. All right, thank you, Kyle's Kitchen, and thank you once again to Bill Guyvette for his time. He's a, a great interview and a great gaucho, and we look forward to hearing from him a lot in the future here on the Gaucho 9 podcast. All right, uh, down the line, I've got a couple things in the works. Not really exact, not exactly sure what's going to be next week yet. It depends on how it all goes together with scheduling and recording and and stuff like that, but I'm uh, going to talk to J.J. Muno and Clay Fisher at one point and also get caught up with some of the pro gauchos who are kind of just on the outside looking in of the MLB rosters. So I think we're going to try and get Dylan Tate, Cal Nelson, and Pete Maris on the pod to talk about how their summers have gone um, in the professional ranks. So that's what's on tap. Not 100% sure which one's going to be first, but uh, we got that stuff to look forward to. So that's going to do it for us at the Gaucho 9 podcast this week. Uh, please stay safe and go Gauchos. Gotcha.